Welcome to the Legally Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Natalie Foster. Natalie is the founder and managing director of Foster Clay Law. During the pandemic, Natalie started her own consultancy model law firm with the aim of modernizing and digitalizing legal services. Previously, Natalie was a partner at North Yorkshire Law, developing key business relationships and increasing revenue streams. So a very warm welcome, Natalie. Thanks, Rob. Good to be here. Absolute pleasure to have you on the show. And before we dive into all your amazing projects and experiences to date, we do have a customary opening question here on the Legally Speaking podcast, which is on the scale of one to 10, 10 being very real, what would you rate the hit TV series Suits in terms of its reality? I uh, would definitely go no higher than a seven. Interesting. And why are you giving me a seven? Um, well, based on the fact that every time I switch it on, which is only when I have time to watch telly, which isn't very often, they seem to spend a lot of time just talking and chatting and not actually drafting anything or billing, which is highly unrealistic in my view. <laughs> yeah. Well, based on that, you've justified your answer and we will move swiftly on. So let's begin at the beginning with you, Natalie. Would you mind telling us a bit about your background and journey? No, not at all. Um, I have a, a very unconventional um, route within uh, to the legal industry. Um, I actually initially started when I left college after doing law, law as A-level, uh, and I did a, an NVQ. Um, I went into retail, um, and then I got a position as a manager working for Arcadia, um, and I was quite very proud really to be working in their uh, flagship store and then worked up into working with Oxford Circus um, and despite the fact that the product that was being sold was obviously um, you know clothing shoes etc Arcadia had a really solid performance management structure and they used um, you know the the smart model in order to grow their uh, revenue and to measure how their staff were performing and what they were doing and um, they had performance targets in respect of um, opening store accounts and this was a really good first step into my um, experience in the corporate world um, being able to be answerable in respect of targets, etc., um, I eventually got a thirst for more. Um, I had a keen interest in working in a, a corporate environment and was interested in the business side as opposed to the the more glamorous side of Arcadia. And went into finance and began a role as a business manager um, in Barclays Bank. Um, over the course of the next few years, I um, worked across a, a whole region um, of the UK, working with a portfolio of 650 clients at one point, um, all of which were small to medium businesses, um, looking at what they needed in terms of funding um, 
and what their business plans were and supporting the underwriting of any lending submissions. Um, over the course of kind of a decade, it was a really great insight into not only regulation, which was then the FSA, now the FCA, but also KYC, AML, all the lovely acronyms that we are all very familiar with in legal, um, particularly client care, managing tasks, prioritizing and operating with clients from a remote point because it was very clear very soon that because of the area that I had, it was impossible to be in front of every client for every issue. Um, further to me, you know, I was fourth in the UK for cross sales at one point and was, again, very interested in client focused, like cross product. Um, did some work going down to London, did some training at um, Churchill Place, one CP. Um, it was, again, hugely um, eye-opening in terms of marketing, the strength of a brand, the intangible asset that is a brand and how that reinforces confidence. Uh, Barclays Bank, arguably one of the most English entrenched brands, certainly pre-Lehman Brothers anyway, that you could have and how it's taken tradition and security and all of the trust that that has and pulled it through into a more digital area um, using, you know, fintech and all the other elements that are now in use, but still retaining those traditional roots. Now, I then had my children and did a law degree, uh, which arguably is what I should have done or did want to do when I was younger, but I, I got married, I had my family and I managed to get a job in a legal practice and I left my job in Barclays and I was working as a legal assistant and very interested in the commercial work and litigation. Um, was fortunate enough to work with some extremely um, well-seasoned lawyers who had a, a typical high street lawyer who had um, expertise in every area, which was extremely helpful for me in my training. Um, completed the degree and I was actually offered partnership at the time due to the connections that I had in my previous role. I'd managed to generate work for the commercial department and I ended up heading up that commercial department um, doing commercial conveyancing, property, uh, transfers of going concerns, etc. So really enjoyed that. Um, was still very much in the newness of practicing, you know, requiring supervision, but I saw so many gaps within the practice um, where we could improve, where we could streamline, where we could save money um, and generate more revenue without having to completely ruin the relationships that had been there for many, many years. Unfortunately, having made partner there, um, it became clear that myself and the partner that I was with at the time didn't have the similar ideas about what route we were going to take. And therefore, uh, I left and set about launching actually the same week as lockdown number one, uh, Foster Clay Law. Um, and there's nothing like a lockdown to stop you procrastinating and crack on with your business plan. Um, and we are here today. And I'm, I'm currently talking to you from my office in our HQ in North Yorkshire. 
Ah, well, what what a journey. And thanks for giving such a, a comprehensive overview there of sort of, you know, how it started and how you sort of transitioned into the law. And, and like you say, to the to the present day, because as you mentioned, during the, the pandemic, you did found, uh, you know, Foster Clay Law, your own law firm, which is super exciting. And you touched on it there, you know, what, what sort of inspired you to create the firm, but also how have you found it during creating that during such a turbulent time? For, I think for many people, the pandemic was such a horrific time professionally and personally. Um, I feel fortunate that whilst it was such a dreadful time for so many, we actually capitalised on the opportunities that were available. Um, we did so by going back to exactly what I've said about the Barclays model, um, which was about creating a trusted brand with well-known lawyers that we had worked with in the area that wanted to come along, retaining those relationships, but creating a digital brand, which was UK-wide, which appealed to not just clients, but lawyers. The key thing for me was about creating a firm that didn't just knock out logins, give you PII cover and say, right, crack on. You know, you're a lawyer, you know what you're doing come back to me when you've hit your target. Because as much as from the research I've seen, the consultancy model does lend itself to a modern way of working. There's still a great deal of isolation. There's a great deal of stress in the job. And there aren't the legal assistance and the network around those lawyers who are working either from home or from a hub we have various hubs across the country that people can go and work in it's a very solitary job and the key change apart from the way in which consultants get paid which is a fee split which is a lot more viable in my view unless you're an equity partner um was around the support that was given um both morally and practically and my vision was always about right i want to create a firm where you know, we use that we overword, we overuse the word culture. Um, but seriously, we wanted to create that culture where we're actually a work family. We have lawyers in London, Maidstone, Manchester, Leeds, Hull, um, Nottingham, and all of these people have a different story as to why they have left private practice or in-house practice and they've wanted to launch their own business and they are they are running their own business and they are doing so with the guidance and support of our team i support um the lawyers with their own personal branding which obviously i've got a lot of experience with legal marketing it's a very niche area a lot of marketing agencies don't get it right i'm sure i don't have to tell you that um the information has to be accurate relevant correct we're so highly regulated we can't afford to put any information out there that isn't accurate. So the best thing to do is own that content yourself. A lot of people don't know how to do that. A lot of lawyers don't. They've never had time. It's not been a KPI in their previous role. And if they want to have a lifestyle where they're working less, earning more, and feeling supported with a head office team that are on the phone all the time. That's what I wanted to create with Foster Clay Law. Um, and that's what we've done. 
Yeah, and you've done a fantastic job, it has to be said, and it's tremendous seeing the firm just flourish. And you mentioned a, a number of locations there. So I have a two-part, you know, three-part question, if you like. How many office locations do you have now? And with the different locations and the option to also work remotely, how do you keep everything running consistently, both for your firm, but also for your clients? And how do you maintain visibility? Sure. Um, so I guess really as with most things at the moment there needs to be two hats that you wear so there's the physical you know presence um to answer your first question we have a Leeds office we have a London office we have our Scarborough North Yorkshire office everything runs from North Yorkshire we're in the process of two other locations which will come out in due course uh, we're just finalizing that now for our teams that are in other areas but the head office is Scarborough, North Yorkshire, our humble little seaside town. It is our post box. It is our telephony um, nerve centre. It is where our legal assistants come to work every day and they operate and they scan and they basically make the lawyers' lives easier. Everything physical that comes in straight away, like any department, scanned, uploaded, task raised on Clio. We love Clio, needed to get that in. Um, and our function is to enable. We have we put the tools in the toolkit for the lawyers and they process the work and we make that as smooth as we can. And um, in terms of the compliance, one of the huge benefits of operating a cloud-based system, and we were meticulous in the partners that we chose at the time, we were in a very strong position because no one was stupid enough to set up a law firm in lockdown week apart from me. So we had a lot of um, leeway to negotiate contracts. It's always good to be in a strong position when you're starting out. Um, the partners that we all chose, they all have API plugins. They all speak to each other. Um, and it allows our Colt Coffer, myself, the accounts manager to track every piece of activity that is conducted on the network. We supervise files remotely. Our head of conveyancing can access um, anybody's matter at any stage, uh, which obviously supports with panel work. Um, we also do outsource where we can. Um, there's this, this, this perception sometimes that outsourcing gives you less control or it's a you know, it's some kind of declaration that you're not big enough and you're not successful enough. And I think it's quite, quite wrong. I think that if you outsource to experts, you are clearly saying, look, we're doing what we're doing and we're doing it damn well, but we don't want to dilute our time by half doing a job where we know we can ask you to do it. We have a compliance um consultant uh, supported us with policy and procedure when we first came in but we we do troubleshooting and we revise our position on a quarterly basis to make sure we're up to speed with everything um and yeah it's been a challenge it's we, to do everything from scratch we're not a single precedent not a single draft not a, not even a domain and then to be in the position that we're in now, it's it's good to look back and look at distance travelled. Obviously, the issue with SRA is there are there is no room for not being up to speed. So the minute we opened our doors, 
everything had to be good to go. There was no, right, well, let's just ease into it. Everything's got to be as it should be, which is quite right. So yes, it's been a challenge, but it's also been wonderful. It's been liberating. And long may it continue. We've got some extremely exciting plans to come to us. Absolutely. And I, I can't wait to see how everything continues to go from strength to strength. And I guess you, you've talked about technology, but how important has technology been to the growth of your firm? And has it been something you always wanted to embrace right from the outset? Without a doubt, we wanted to be paperless. We wanted to be a tech firm. There's, there's no other logical direction for any business, really. Um, but particularly for professional services, you know, the security element um, is so incredibly important, but also accessibility. You know, you can't purport to be giving a service to clients or even to lawyers um, without embracing cloud-based technology and remote access. So that was the starting point. And, you know, it's quite funny because I was speaking to um, somebody who I'm working on a project with earlier this morning and it isn't groundbreaking anymore. What the legal industry is now shouting and screaming about, with the exception of you know your good friend Mitch Jackson and all those innovative people at that end, you know, flexible working, uh, remote access, um, DocuSign, signing of deeds electronically. We're talking about these things like we've just discovered Fire, and these things are basic. These things have been around in the fintech world and you know, for many, many years now, um, you know, an example of a smart contract, for example, I, my last car lease was like six years ago when I had to sign the document and it was a smart contract. It was a timestamp document where I signed up to a credit agreement. Um, but now the legal industry is going smart contracts, this smart contracts, that this has been around for ages. It's just taken us Arguably, it needs to be 10% or more, according to Sir Jeffrey Voss, that need to embrace an idea in an industry before it, it has any hold on change. And that's what we're all doing now. We're all seeing people discussing things and, and being excited about digitization. It's actually been around a hell of a long time. The consultancy model, my co-director, uh, Isabel, she's been a consultant for 10 years. She had a very successful career. Um, been quite literally a law unto herself, managed her own business. I think it's partly to do with confidence. It's partly to do with trend. You know, what is everyone else doing? Oh, that looks really successful. I'll have a go at that. Um, seeing it successful for other people. But I think now it's gone further than that. And it's about, right, who do you go with? Sole practitioners inevitably have a really difficult time obtaining PII. Um, in fact, in every sense of the word, setting up as a sole practitioner, I've got every bit of respect for anyone who manages to do it successfully because the bar is so high for being able to convince to go on lender panels, get insurance, um, everything is against you. So to be able to operate as a self-employed lawyer, run your own business, um, have the support of policies, procedures, and all of the precedents that you need, um, is a big deal. But going one step further than that, being able to call your colleagues who you're an, on an equal par with, I don't manage anybody. I manage processes and I manage 
the firm. But the people, these are independent, very intelligent, well-trained individuals. I'm not going to micromanage lawyers. That's not what you should be doing in a firm. You should be enabling them, empowering them and monitoring them. Um, and that's that's what we do. And what a tremendous job you do continue to do day in, day out, Natalie, it has to be said. And oh, stick- thank you. Yeah, and so deserved. Time for a quick break from the show. Are you a legal aid practitioner in England and Wales, specializing in civil or criminal legal aid matters? If you are, this message is for you. As a legal aid solicitor, you don't have time to waste on legal aid case management software that doesn't work to your needs. That's why Clio has developed a quicker, more accurate and affordable solution for legal aid solicitors in England and Wales. It could save you hours in your month, particularly when it comes to end of month invoicing and claims to the legal aid agency. To see how it all works, visit clio.com forward slash UK forward slash legal aid. That's Clio, C-L-I-O dot com forward slash UK forward slash legal aid. Now back to the show. Yeah, sticking with sort of processes and technologies, which what are some new processes and technologies you're currently implementing and ones that you're looking to maybe implement soon or in the near future? So, yeah, I obviously at the present moment, we operate um, any conveyancing transaction, transfer of property. We have a large property department. We do everything electronically. So you can essentially complete on your house when you're, I, I, had a, I always use this an example. I have a, had a client who was in the Spanish mountains with the sun beaming on his face and he was on Zoom to me and he completed on a house on his smartphone while he was talking to me. Um, that's pretty cool. That's, that's a yeah. good place to be as an industry. Um, arguably, it's come way later than it should have been, but hey, we're catching up now. Um, you know, the, the, the sky's the limit, really. I think what's really key isn't so much about what we're doing as a firm, but about where the law society is. And Because if they don't embrace and endorse something, we can't practice it. So obviously everything has to be um, agreed and it has to be endorsed by the law society. It's a very Marmite subject at the moment because of fear and because of lack of knowledge. But, you know, I mentioned him earlier, Sir Geoffrey Voss, who's master of the roles, you know, is the second highest ranking um, lawyer in the country. And he endorses this approach hugely. He's, um, I went to a seminar in, uh, that was hosted by Law Tech UK in London not too long ago, I think about a month ago now, with my director, um, Isabel, and the content that came out of that was unequivocally was about lawyers needing to be needed. There was this fear a few years ago that everything was going to be automated. Lawyers will be done out of a job. That was absolutely contradicted um, at this seminar. And it's become clear that it's not that lawyers are going to be out of a job. It's that the lawyer's job needs to change. The application of law will never change and nor should it because that's fundamentally exactly what we do when we're faced with an issue. But the delivery, the method and the process in which we deliver that to the client has to change. It has to be developed and it has to be innovative. And that needs to come from automation. It needs to come from a smart contracts, smart legal contracts particularly, um, that are now enforceable with 
English contract law. Um, crypto assets are now a recognized term um, within the legal industry. So they are defined and can be um, referenced within judgments, etc. cetera. Um, on the 25th of November, 2021 last year, the Law Commission um, did state that they are going to adapt their constitution to support the use of smart contracts. Um, and there's emerging technology all the time in the form of legal engineers who are lawyers who can now code. So we have got now a, a band of innovative lawyers, and these are the lawyers that we are attracting at the moment, who want to embrace this approach but need the regulation. They need to know that they're working within the confines of their license and dealing with everything in a compliant way. But they are creative and they're also wanting to embrace the technology and being able to facilitate clients that are transferring property in the metaverse, that are doing factoring and invoicing um, using disbursement funding, um, using NFTs. There are a multitude of different opportunities that will inevitably be um, explored in time, but it can only happen when endorsement from the Law Society happens. And they've created um, a, a, well, it's a, it's a panel called the UKJT. Um, UKJT is a team of um, very well-seasoned tech experts, um, Sarah Green for one, um, obviously um, Sir Jeremy Voss. There's, there's so many people that are, have come together and troubleshooted and brainstormed around the risks and the opportunities. And it has been concluded that um, certainly by the end of this summer, there is going to be um, further guidance on smart legal contracts, not to be confused with smart contracts. Smart legal contract is separate. It's applicable and enforceable by law um, that will allow lawyers to function day-to-day -day using uh, time-stamped processes that are contractually binding agreements. Now, if you're a geek like me, that just fills me with butterflies because where are the limits there? I mean, we talk about how horrendous the conveyancing process is, um, and that's no reflection on conveyances because they are incredible in what they do, but it's a process. It's all a process. So then we talk about, well, how can we make that process slicker? It's all about the onboarding piece. So the AML and the KYC is a big chunky part of that. Then the transaction itself is a piece of cake. You check a contract. You check that you've gone through your checklist, your aid memoir. You know, have we got monies in, undertaking, etc. That bit is actually easy. It's the onboarding and it's the onboarding of both the property and the person. I could go on and on and on, but I'm just mindful that we've only got a little bit of time <laughs> yeah. left, Rob. No, so I, you I, know, I apologise for droning on, but it's something that's consumed me for quite a while now. And obviously you can probably tell I feel really passionate about it. And I've still got lots to learn. I'm very grateful. I'm surrounded by very good people.
Yeah, and definitely, I, I love the passion coming through. And you know, it's not it's not straightforward when you're trying to disrupt and digitalize, you know, a, a, an industry such as the the legal industry. But what you're doing, and you know, the the results speak for themselves. And I, I just want to touch on, you know, sticking with 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 tech because you use Clio, which is a cloud based legal services platform. You know, with a very client centric approach. How did you initially find Clio? Why do you use them, and what are some of the benefits for your law firm? Sure. Um, good question. So, yes, I did have time. I had a lot of time to research. Um, I probably personally had demonstrations with six different providers at that time. Um, I'd also used two previous case management systems previously, so it was um, it was an informed decision to go with Clio. Um, personally, when I decided to go with Clio it wasn't because they are a unicorn company they actually weren't at the time it wasn't for all of the reasons that you probably see online about oh well it's the most popular it's the most endorsed um the, the most widely used it was about how I found navigating through the system like with any system there's always tweaks that you would make we have actually got a team in-house who are working with Clio to try to bespoke and personalize it to our our lawyers' tastes. I think as with anything, uh, Clio was reasonably priced, it's subscription-based, it's ticked all the boxes for a startup, but it was cloud-based, it was secure. Um, their dashboard for management, very, very useful, um, great to be able to drill down on the firm's position as a manager going in because you know, as a startup, every day matters. I think what's important is if you're giving a system, you have to take some ownership over that system. You can't just be given logins and, you know, and this goes for lawyers as well that we that we have. There is a help desk in place. There are key people, and um, I'm going to name drop now, um, Geraldine, who I know you know. Um, she's our accounts manager. She's been a, she's actually been a very good friend um, in, in the industry. John Noonan, who um, introduced us to the Clio Grow when it, when it re was released. There are certain things that you can be provided with that will be amazing for you operating in a business, particularly a law firm. But if you don't take the time to understand the, the case management system, any system that you're using, and maximize its full capacity, then it will always be, to a degree, wasted money um, because you're not using it to its full potential. And, you know, we are still only in month 21. Um, we currently have 24 lawyers. Um, we have a, plans to do a great deal more with a great deal more um but we have a responsibility to understand what clio can do what all the other areas um, and portals that we use do and put that together in a very clean way so that lawyers can hit the ground running when they come in they're not fanning around having to do you know a, a, an access to it when they walk in they they can pick it up and they can quite easily see what they need to do workflows that are there um and we spent a great deal of time back of house making sure that that's on point 
And what a, what a tremendous job, again, you've done with that integration. And yes, we are massive fans of Geraldine as well. I think she does a tremendous <laughs> job for Clio. So in an interview with the, the business desk, uh, you discussed digitalization of law firm and you were aware of the struggles of traditional models, which we've touched on, especially in current times. So you didn't want to store paper documents or be open to a higher degree of human error. So why so eager to move away from paper documentation? And do you think eventually the legal profession will be completely paperless? I think it was not so much about moving away from paper. It was about moving towards digitization. Um, there will always be a place for paper. Don't get me wrong. I'm sat here staring at post-it notes as we speak. Um, you know, that's an instant, um, recordable and very useful tool. People will always make notes and they will always print things off and do things in manuscript just to brainstorm. But for me, it was about what are the benefits to staying stagnant in a, in, and doing things as we've always done them. And there are no benefits. I don't want Foster Clay Law to become or to be a firm like any firm that you could swing a cat and hit around any city, uh, with the exception certainly of a few amazing uh, innovative firms at the moment, um, where there's complacency and it's almost too disruptive to change. We had a unique opportunity to lead the way and to go right day one we aren't doing that this is how we're doing it this is procedure we don't deviate and it was a change for many people that came in because they'd always had you know one two secretaries um what we did was make sure that the lawyers can run their own files and admin as easy as possible without the need to pay for an administrator to them which is a consultant you know if you want more than what we offer in terms of the admin support, it's something that you pay for. You're running your own business. Um, so, uh, you know, we still have a will bank. We still store deeds and wills where necessary. Um, most properties are now registered, which, you know, but we always would encourage um, a, a first registration to be the way forward for security reasons. If you lose your deeds, it's not in the client's best interest to have loose deeds. Um, there's always a justification why going with a digital approach is smarter, it's better for the environment, um, and it's easier. And it allows people across the country to pick up your case file if, God forbid, anything happens like getting COVID or having an emergency. And that make sure that the client isn't having that breaking care because as much as we like to say, yeah, it's okay, we've done a handover, we've got so-and-so dealing with your case file now. We all know, anyone that's ever worked in a law firm with paper files knows that that is not correct. No lawyer is going to pick up another lawyer's notes and take it at face value because it's their license and it's their risk. They will always do a file review first. And it's quite often really quite difficult, especially if you don't have a physical file in front of you. With Clio and our system, you log in, you access an electronic file at any point. And it, it's not, like I say, it's not groundbreaking. This has been going on in firms for ages, but there's been so many that haven't moved with the times that have now been pushed to, and they're losing good staff because they didn't put the changes in place when perhaps they should have done. 
Um, and, you know, we will welcome those people with, with open arms. Absolutely. And coming to you sort of on a, a personal perspective, Natalie, because obviously you do so much, you know, you, you've got a lot of things that you're juggling. How do you find managing a young family and a young law firm? <laughs> um, it's a challenge, of course, but I don't think what I do day to day is any different from what any of our fee earners do day to day. I'm answerable to clients, I'm answerable to staff, um, and I'm answerable to a regulator. Um, I manage time a lot better than I used to. It was a challenge for me. Time management was always something I wasn't really, I didn't have it nailed. I've got no choice but to have it nailed now. At one point when I was studying, I was doing a full-time degree. I was working 30 hours a week in a law firm, running a department. As a junior Fiona under supervision, um, and my husband was commuting um, 150 miles a day. So I was doing two school runs as well, which was fun. Um, so we've always been busy people. We, we like a nice life and we like to be busy. Um, I'm a Rotarian. I like to do things involved with the community. Um, I do a lot with my daughter's musical um, theatre school, performing arts school. I think it's just a, about compartmentalizing things. So when I'm here, I'm here 100%. When I'm with my children, I try to be there 100%. Um, and we, I try not to mix the two. Uh, but inevitably, the kids do pop into the office and our restrictions have lifted and swan about like they own the place. But, you know, it, it's a family feel. Um, it, it goes for everybody here. And they get to know everyone and, and ultimately I think that is how people stay if they're happy with the package they're getting and they're looked after and they feel that they can be a person rather than a number they're going to stay and they're going to give it everything they've got so for me it's just I enjoy doing my job I want to do better every day at it and I'm willing to take on extra things to get to a point where I know that the team are empowered enough to run it without me there. My time will come. The rest will come, but just not now. It's not the right time to rest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you, you, you're doing such a good job. I just want to sort of stress that, Natalie. Oh, thank you what, so much. What you're doing and, you know, with this digital movement and embracing it is just phenomenal. So before we, we wrap up, I kind of want to stick to a point around marketing and branding. You know, how important is marketing and the importance of having a personal brand not only as a law firm leader, but just as a lawyer in general? Uh, I don't think it used to be that important. I think certainly 10 years ago, um, it was more about what memberships or committees or um, you know various different things you were into, extracurricular, and it was about you know personal relationships that stemmed back from parents, even grandparents. I think those relationships are still extremely important. Um, but I think certainly over the course of the last decade, for example, your, your LinkedIn profile is your shop front window. And anybody who doesn't have a LinkedIn profile and who is moaning about not getting work in or not being able to generate income for their business needs a reality check because it is the tool that has been able to um, springboard Foster Clay uh, in very successful recruitment, 
those individuals have subsequently then adopted our brand and have been able to share it with their network. Um, obviously, it's B2B, business to business predominantly, but inevitably, these are all people. So when people aren't working in a business and need a personal problem, they have a private client issue, They, if you're memorable and you already have that relationship, they pick up the phone. Um, so it's indirectly B2C as well. Personal brand is is great. I mean, there's some hugely innovative um, individuals who perhaps at times take it too personal because it isn't a personal brand. It's a personal professional brand. People want to know who you are. They don't want to know what you have for your dinner. I don't care what people have had for the dinner or whether they've gone for a run in the woods. But I do care if they've had a really difficult day um, and they've found a solution. And I do care about mental well-being. And I do care if they've had a big success and want to share it and be proud. Um, that's personal professional branding. Um, and I think the two need to be not kept completely separate, but I think there's a balance. There's been a lot of, um, you know, a lot of talk. I'm sure you're familiar with probably some individuals and, and I've got you know great deal of respect for it. Whoever invests the time and the energy it takes to really conquer LinkedIn, and I'm by no means an expert, I really aren't. But I've just found that it's been diluted and it's less about the services that people can offer and how that applies to real life and personal individuals. And it's more just about that person. Um, and there's that saying, isn't there? This isn't Facebook, it's LinkedIn. Well, I think that's right to a certain extent. You know, let's not clog up feeds with things that otherwise probably aren't great much use to people. I think it's always about being useful to someone. But still, people do want to know who you are. They want to know what makes you tick. Um, you know, I, I always love it when you do your virtual insanity Monday nights and you talk about your dog. And I just think that's great. What an icebreaker. You know, you're, you're a dad to a young baby you're juggling multiple different balls in the air and, and you've got a little dog. It just straight away makes things more relaxed, approachable. Um, and yeah, you, you can't underestimate the importance of what your perception is. And LinkedIn for me has been a, a, a really good tool for that. I couldn't have put it any better myself, Natty. I just plus one to everything you've just said. So if our listeners, which I'm sure they will, would like to learn more about Foster Clay Law, what would be the best way for them to contact you? Feel free to shout out any social media or web links. We'll also share them with this episode for you too. Thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, anybody can email me, nfoster at fosterclaylaw.com. Um my personal information or my contact information, should I say, is on my LinkedIn profile. So Natalie Foster, um, you'll also see that Foster Clay Law have got a, a page, uh, a business page as well. Funny, actually, in noting that personal pages always get more followers than business. So I think that's the answer to your question, isn't it? That yeah. it's not, it, you know, that it's there. The evidence is there as to what makes people tick. Um, but yeah. I'm always happy to have a conversation with um, lawyers who want who are in a crossroads. Um, it won't be a sales pitch for me. It'll be, where are you at? What do you want to do? And I'm happy to navigate that with them. I'm sure you're very, you know, very clued upon doing that because that's what you do predominantly anyway, Rob. But 
Then the second bit that I do is um, I offer a consultancy. So for legal practice owners who are scared stiff of the changes that inevitably are going to need to be made, um, I actually have a, a team where we we do a gap analysis of like risk and compliance, uh, marketing and branding, product, website. We actually have the tools where, because it's all collaboration, not competition. Somebody else doing well doesn't take it from you. If we can go in there and troubleshoot and help modernize these firms so that these managing partners don't have to fork out runoff cover or, you know, go bankrupt or lose good people because they haven't kept up with um, what the industry is doing, I, I take great satisfaction in that. So always happy to talk to professionals in the industry in any capacity, really, and, and share what I've got and, of course, learn from others. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much, Natalie. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. So we'd like to wish you lots of continued success, no doubt, which you're going to continue to see and throughout the rest of your career. But from all of us from the Legally Speaking podcast for now, over and out. This week's review comes from Maya from My Legal Career, the best legal podcast, five stars, buried and packed full of information. These podcasts are an incredible and diverse guest speakers provide so much value to both aspiring lawyers and the legal community in general. 10 out of 10. Maya, thank you so, so much for your kind words and review from all of us at the Legally Speaking Podcast. We appreciate you.